What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What do you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, just as time started to run out, there was a renewed push on Capitol Hill to pass another round of fiscal stimulus before Congress leaves for the holidays, with a group of bipartisan senators looking to make a deal on COVID-19 relief. This has been up against the backdrop of some grim milestones, with the deaths surpassing 300,000 people in the U.S., even as the first Pfizer vaccine shots were administered by U.S. hospitals to frontline healthcare workers. Now a financial shot in the arm is needed for millions across the country. Stimulus could be the answer to revive the economy, but at the same time, there could be an inflationary impulse as well. There has been a lot of monetary and fiscal support unleashed on the economy, and some are worried about its after effects, with Japan as a case study of what could be to come. So we spoke about this with Exante Data founder and CEO Jens Nordvik, who also has a new newsletter out and started by asking him why the myth about the connection between monetary aggregates and inflation refuses to die. Well, it's uh, it's been in the textbooks for uh, for decades, and uh, you can just go and Google it. If you Google money supply and inflation, you'll get like almost all the top hits will will be like if there's some kind of mathematical certainty that money supply is gonna translate into inflation in a simple way. It's just not that simple, and we've had uh, very strong evidence of that over the last decade, where we're different central banks have experimented more or less aggressively with, with money printing, and we've had very, very little inflation. So it takes, it takes time for this myth to die, but that's, that's why we started this blog. Uh, uh, most of our content is behind a payroll and has been mm-hmm. secret, and now we wanted to do a, a blog, we call it uh, Money Inside and Out, uh, where we go into some of this uh, policy, policy debate for a big audience. And um, uh, this was one of the first ones we wanted to put out nice. there. And uh, maybe next year will be different, but uh, the t- last mm. 10 years have been pretty clear. Jens, you hope to spark debate through this blog. Did you get any answers or any fight back to your perspective that caught your attention that you thought, oh, that has credence to it? Well, so we uh, we definitely got a lot of commenting. So we, we'll have to <laughs> we'll, we'll have to decide what we do with the comment section because we have to answer all the comments. We'll be very busy the whole day. <laughs> um, I, I think the, um, the the situation we have looking into 2001 is one where uh, we have a combination of both monetary and fiscal policies. So really, what's different now is that. As opposed to the situation right after the global financial crisis where monetary policy was kind of alone, there's much more realization now that uh, fiscal policy will have to do more of the heavy lifting and it will be the complement of fiscal monetary policy together that can potentially generate something new. And I think even the debate we're having this week about, okay, 
uh, are we going to have uh, 900 billion of fiscal stimulus in the U.S. as a top up, or 700 billion? Those amounts, if we compare to the amounts that were discussed uh, after the global financial crisis, are actually pretty big amounts, and especially on top of the previous stimulus, right? So we're just having a new mindset on fiscal, and it would be that combination of just per persistently aggressive fiscal stimulus mm. and a Fed that is saying, okay, we're not going to do anything preemptively. That is what has a chance of generating inflation in a different way from uh, essentially monetary policy alone. Yeah, I don't mean to split hairs, but I do wonder, Jens, if there is sort of a distinction here between, I guess, the type of stimulus or whatever you want to call whatever the Fed did, that quantitative easing, uh, versus more fiscal type of stimulus. I mean, you have the idea of printing money, but what the Fed has effectively done uh, back during the financial crisis and even up to today is really not printing money as much as it is simply just kind of facilitating, uh, you know, the rotation of assets, more or less. Well, so I, th I, think, I think the key distinction is what uh, I would call an asset swap QE, right, where the Fed buys a bunch of bonds and it injects some bank reserves into the system. And it's that asset swap that doesn't really impact the real economy that much. But if we have a situation where the Fed is buying bonds and the government goes and actually spends that extra cash, uh, either in the form of infrastructure or giving it to households that are going to spend them, it's a totally different impact on the economy. So that's the big difference. There's also a big debate about, okay, is it just asset price inflation or whatever it is? But ultimately, the, the, the sort of most important uh, part of inflation for the average consumer is obviously what the consumer goods basket is doing. And that has not been moving very much so far. But if there is really a demand impact of the overall policy setup, it could be different. So I'm not saying, oh, we're going to have massive hyperinflation next year. I'm not saying there's a simple relationship between money supply. What I'm saying is that actually this type of policy constellation that you have now right. has a chance of generating inflation over time. And obviously, market participants need to be very careful because it's absolutely not priced, right? So it's always surprising stuff that can really move markets. Jens, you said earlier that one of the key differences or what could drive inflation would be persistently stimulative fiscal policy. You know, of course, we're finding out, uh, getting details on a possible stimulus right now. We don't know if it's going to go anywhere. But it's also a one-off, $700 billion, $900 billion. It's a lot of money. And then presumably, we sort of go back to fiscal policy as normal does a one-off do it, or would it really have to be a meaningful change in how we approach fiscal policy to actually get a change in the inflation trajectory? I, I think the persistence is, is very, very key. And I think you will find that a lot of the, the key economic voices within the new Biden administration sort of have learned the lesson from the post-global financial crisis period in that you don't want to take back the stimulus too early. Right. This is a key lesson. We are seeing it in Europe as well, right? In Europe, we, they're sort of famous for having a, a tight fiscal framework uh, within the Maastricht Treaty. The Maastricht Treaty is disabled in Europe officially. You don't have to obey the fiscal rules this year and next year either. So they want to generate some persistency in the fiscal stimulus there. So it's part of this framework where fiscal policy is getting more emphasis, and rightly so. And I think you're absolutely right to point out to the consistency. And I will point out that in the U.S., this uh, sort of lame duck stimulus is important to give the economy momentum. 
but it's not viewed as the last bit, right? So we have a new administration coming in right. and presumably they'll be very aggressive, like infrastructure is a big thing. That's going to come online later on. Ahead of this week's Fed meeting, we saw a simultaneous risk on rally in stocks and break evens. We saw this reflation and spoke with John Turek, the author of the Chief Convexity blog, about whether it can continue. We started by asking John if the 10-year break-evens can continue to advance and whether that is an important precondition for further stock market gain. I think it actually it can continue because one of the things that's very interesting about what will be this recovery as opposed to recoveries in the past is that it's something that the Fed is going to lean into probably a lot more than it traditionally has. And given the fact that we're kind of pinned at zero across the bond market, I think it allows for this natural inherent expansion in, in the range of where asset markets can trade, whether that's in FX or in equities. Um, so I think really the key will be in terms of, you know, allowing this pretty monster inflationary rally to continue is for the Fed to maintain and reaffirm that its new reaction function is here to stay. But do you think that that's realistic? Because at the end of the day, I mean, if you believe what uh, Powell and the Fed have been saying, there is still uh, an inflation reaction that they would have should uh, you actually start to see it materialize in a meaningful way. We can argue about how long that would take. But at some point, you would think the Fed's hand would be forced. Yeah, I mean, I think well, one of the you know potentially interesting narratives going into next year um, is that this Q2, Q3 boom, and does that set up a cage match between, you know, the Fed's new average inflation targeting metrics versus, you know, the potential upside risks, which are considerable, given that the, the current Fed dot for growth next year is around 4%, which will probably be end up being quite low. Um, and I, I think actually is that the Fed's resolve in terms of enforcement and reaction function may surprise people. I mean, Governor Brainard in a speech in February, which predates uh, kind of the COVID shock, came up with this idea of opportunistic reflation, which in a sense would be the Fed leaning into these, you know, outsized temporary inflationary moves um, and kind of using that as a mechanism to get, you know, both to their goals and inflation mm. expectations back anchored at 2%. Cage fight. I love that. It sort of speaks slightly to, we talk about it a lot, the inequality that is being so painfully obvious in as we resuscitate this economy. And it's something that we heard Jay Powell speak about even prior to the COVID, the fact that driving unemployment quite so low started to mean that more and more people were benefiting. Is does the fact that even Jay, uh, the fact that Joe Biden is looking to put that upon Jay Powell, that some sort of role of the Federal Reserve in helping drive down inequality. Could we see that even more add credence to the fact that this is going to be an economy that's allowed to run hot? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a very good point. I mean, I think one of the things that's very interesting about, you know, the Fed's current reaction function is that the Fed listens events and the Fed strategic review kind of really predates COVID and they were ready on this path of trying to you know, reinforce a hot economy and one where basically policy can pro-cyclically expand, which means that you know, as the economy recovers by the Fed by saying that there's so many barriers to tightening and that they have no interest in tightening, that actually allows um, the stance of policy to expand via real interest rates. And that's kind of what we've seen so far this year in, in the reflation rallies. You've had this divide between you know, real yields kind of inching lower and break even shooting higher. 
And I think that's a testament to the, the fact that the market does believe that this reaction function is, is here to stay and the Fed is serious about it. Um, and I think, you know, further progress on the fiscal front will, you know, only add credence to the fact that this recovery may look different than the 2009-2010 one. Uh, John, you know, as you mentioned, we expect to see some sort of economic boom in Q2, Q3 of next year, thanks to the vaccine. Perhaps the Fed's optimistic forecast may prove to be even not optimistic enough. But there is considerable damage to the economy now. Small businesses, we know they're closing. There's been a long gap in aid. It's going to be tough, especially with more lockdowns. What is your view on the risk of like hysteresis to the supply side, businesses shutting and the, and, uh, the economy being sort of supply constrained when we come out because of the loss of this uh, of uh, various um, of various uh, businesses during this during this difficult period? Yeah, I think it, I think it's for sure risk. I mean, it was only just today that, uh, got, um, you know, ex-president Draghi was out saying that insolvency is a risk kind of even if, you know, in the post covid world. Um, and I think this is where really fiscal policy will have to, you know, durably stay the course. And I think maybe what is really um, part of, you know, this theme of that it is different this time is that outside of the U.S., um, fiscal policy has remained, you know, fairly durable, even to hmm. into, you know, mitigation measures in Europe. We've seen Germany and France extend um, jobless schemes. We've seen Australia and, and uh, commit to a, you know, a state contingent of basically forward guidance for fiscal policy. We've seen Korea, you know, promise a pretty expansionary budget for next year. So places that were traditionally, you know, fiscally cautious are showing that they're, you know, into they're in the, they're in the long game in this. And that should, you know, hopefully offset some of the, you know, hysteresis of this cycle. And when it comes to the U.S., I think it'll be interesting. You know, hopefully we get something done before year end. Um, but I think one of the things that will be interesting with the U.S. is that the market has a level of trust that the private sector um, can take over, as in this, you know, this transition of a fiscal reflation to a vax reflation, um, I think is much more durable uh, in the U.S. Um, and if that can kind of get combined with, you know, more fiscal accommodation abroad and, of course, fiscal, you know, package in the right. U.S., that could be a good backdrop for, you know, a, a less hysteresis this time around. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This week, we also saw more regulatory pressure on big tech, the European Union unveiling its new rules on data usage, and companies deemed to be gatekeepers could face fines as high as 10% of annual revenue if they don't comply. Companies including Google, Amazon, and Apple will be banned from using any data from business users to compete with them or from treating their own services more favorably in rankings. And the interest doesn't end in the EU. The New York Times reporting that Google could be targeted in a search monopoly case by state attorneys general. We discussed it all with Zach Merrill, the founder of the Knuckleheads Club, who has spent years researching Google search engine. So the reason why it's called the Knuckleheads Club is because you kind of have to be a knucklehead to try to go after Google, right? Like they're this huge entity uh, controlling such a big part of our life. 
And I think that's that's the reason why we found it. You uh, want to continue to what reining in Google in some way? Right, right. I think the the thing to know here is that Google is this just terribly complicated entity. And what we've done here is we've looked at the heart of Google, and we've found it something called a natural monopoly. Um, what Google has to do is a process called web crawling, where they go out and collect all this information on the internet, uh, and all the search engines have to do this. But when Google goes out and does it, websites all across the internet, all across the web, give Google uh, extra special access and more information, allow it to crawl a lot faster and to collect information more uh, faster. And what uh, we've done so far is we've provided a lot of evidence uh, about why um, Google gets this advantage and how much of this advantage uh, they have, right? Um, and this has particular implications for uh, antitrust and how to regulate Google. So is the general idea here, Zach, I mean, when you're, when you're focusing on this web crawler issue, and for the folks that maybe don't understand it here, how do you get to, I guess, your general technical knowledge of how this web crawler operates and square that circle with, I guess, the legal bar, a relatively high bar to prove monopolistic behavior? Right, right. So I've worked in the industry for about 10 years now, and I've spent uh, two years re researching this topic alone, right? Um, so it's a fairly technical topic. Um, but I think one of the best things that you can do today, if you're try if you're really interested in this, is if you go to knuckleheads.club, you can read all the research, right? Uh, recently, this research was cited uh, in the uh, big tech antitrust report that got published by the uh, subcommittee on antitrust. Um, right. And, uh, you know, what you're reading there so, is what I sent to them, right? So, Zach, suppose that me... Romaine and Caroline, we wanted to start our own search engine, the three of us, to compete with Google. Your essential assertion is that we would have to crawl the web, do our own sort of like create our own index of the entire internet, but that because websites, they all want to like be featured high on Google, Google gets special priority to all of their internal data. There's costs associated with having these sites crawled. And so just the cost of doing that would inherently be prohibitive, meaning that that um, map of the web, essentially, that Google has cannot really easily be re um, replicated by any competitor. Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be very difficult for you, if not impossible, for you to go out and re crawl the same way that Google does. Because if you try, right, you might get you know a couple web pages here and there, but you know, there's software engineers out there who are watching what you're doing if you're crawling their websites, right? Because it is expensive and you mm -hmm. are incurring costs for these companies. And so if you're crawling too much mm -hmm. or you're crawling too fast and you're not Google, you're gonna get blocked. There's gonna be a firewall, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, it's something, oh, Zach, go ahead. why does it matter for me? Why does it matter for me? Why, why should it matter that there's one player that's so efficient at search? Right. I think it matters for you because what Google has is this moat, right, around its uh, uh, core thing, like the Google search, right? And because of this moat, uh, which is this natural monopoly on web crawling, it's allowed to just create all these, uh, just reap all these profits, right, from the, the ads that it sells on search results. And with those profits, it's able to go out and just, like, expand out into other markets and kind of be... Not so great, right? Uh, an example I'll give is Google, uh, the Stadia project, right? The you know, video game thing that they tried and are just uh, continue to fail at, right? Uh, I don't think another company could get a, get away with that, right? But when they came into that market, it kind of took the air out of the room, right? So if you were interested in video games like I am, I'm 
you know, shameful to admit. Uh, no shame. <laughs> uh, it was a little disappointing to see them come in and be, you know, really helpful. You know, Google's got all this resources. They can do all this, this cool stuff. But uh, no, it wasn't. It, it was really pretty disappointing. And me and my friends were not pretty, not all that happy with it. So um, and I think it did set back the that market a little bit. So I think the, the point I'm trying to get across for you is uh, and for all your listeners here is that Google has all this uh, power and it's it's squandering it. And I think we as a society is get, we're giving them the power by not regulating web crawling uh, and not and choosing not to do so. So what what's the remedy then, Zach, mm. that that you would propose uh, that you think would rectify this? I think the remedy here is uh, regulations passed at the national international level that uh, give competitors access to that cash. Right? Um, there's once you say crawling the web is a natural monopoly, you can kind of put. Uh, that sentence into the regulation machine, right? We know how to regulate natural monopolies. Um, uh, there's there's a lot of case law and a lot of precedents here. Um, but what I think the thing that we don't know was that, or that we didn't know prior to this research getting published, was that crawling the web was a natural monopoly, right? And that it is something that should be considered as such and regulated as such, right? Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Meanwhile, the market has had a lot thrown at it in 2020, and still the enthusiasm remains, and it's not just stocks. Bitcoin blew past the magical 20,000 mark and even hit above 23,000 at one point. We spoke with Coin Fund managing partner and head of liquid investments, Seth Gins, about the crypto rally. We started by asking him about increased institutional interest in the space. Yeah, no, we're, we're seeing a lot of institutional interest in, in crypto. And I'll tell you that the One River Digital announcement is a big deal. It, it's really uh, going to be the go-to place for an institution that wants to put 50 million, 100 million um, into Bitcoin and Ethereum combined um, uh, in a, uh, a fiduciary structure, one where it, it's a fund structure. They have Coinbase on the back end, Northern Trust. So, so I think this is a big deal, and they're talking about going larger, which is great. I also think the inclusion of Ethereum is fantastic because there's so much innovation happening in crypto beyond just Bitcoin. Bitcoin is awesome. We love it. Um, but, but a lot of the innovation is also happening on the Ethereum blockchain. So, Seth, can you kind of distill, I guess, in, into just a couple of sentences here as to why institutional investors are willing to wade into this space in a way that they weren't willing mm. to do, uh, you know, two, three years ago when we were talking about that magnificent rally in Bitcoin back then? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of that ties into what, what brought me into the space full time at the beginning of this year. It's the fact that institutional grade infrastructure has really been built up from 2017 to today. That's institutional grade custodians. That's uh, the rules engines to make sure that funds don't go places that they're not supposed to go. That's prime brokers. That's the derivatives infrastructure. This morning, CME said they're launching Ethereum futures, um, but we got Bitcoin futures in December of 2017. So a, I think it's really having the, the infrastructure in place and having come in place since the last bull market. 
But secondly, I mean, I'll tell you this year, the regulatory environment has been one of the biggest positive surprises. Um, the, the Office of the Controller of the Currency saying that uh, federally chartered banks can custody crypto. That's a really big deal. Um, and, uh, and we think we're going to see uh, more on that front down the road that um, it is going to lay the groundwork to allow institutions to be comfortable that this is an asset class that's here to stay. Um, and it has uh, a lot of asymmetry to its return profile. Uh, Seth, who, who all is buying? I mean, we know, is it high net worth individuals? Is it investment funds? Like, where's the marginal dollar coming from right now? We also know that some companies have put uh, part of their treasury stock into Bitcoin. MicroStrategy has gotten a lot of attention. But, you know, obviously institutions is a broad category. What specifically do you see uh, where, the, where the most action is? Yeah, so it's interesting. The, the action today, right now, is actually in hedge funds. So it's a lot of different types of hedge funds, macro funds, funds that uh, that, that are actually um, uh, focused on fundamental equities, but but believe that there's a diversification benefit to uh, to, to Bitcoin and crypto. That's where we're seeing action today. I, I was talking to a desk a few days ago that was saying they have ten billion dollar plus hedge funds that are either buying Bitcoin right now or in the process of onboarding. So, so that's really the, the money that can move quickly and the money that's coming in today. But then you look beyond that, we're talking to defined benefit pension plans. We're, we're talking to endowments, foundations, obviously family offices, high net worth, as you, as you mentioned as well. What's fantastic is you, you get someone like the insurer, Mass Mutual, putting 100 million of Bitcoin in their general investment account last week. And I, I was talking to another insurance company and they're looking at it now. So you, you get this competitive dynamic. And I, I would presume off of what MicroStrategy and Square have done putting Bitcoin on their balance sheets, um, you're, you're likely to see more companies over time looking at uh, treasury engagement with, mm. with Bitcoin as well. Well, Seth, I mean, you talk about the big money managers. One of the biggest out there is, of course, Guggenheim. And they've been putting mm -hmm. through the desire to be able to buy crypto into some of their funds. We actually spoke with Scott Minard earlier, all to do with the Federal Reserve. They came out with this eye-watering, eye-popping sort of viewpoint on where crypto is going. Just take a listen. Uh, we made the decision to start allocating toward Bitcoin. Uh, when Bitcoin was at 10,000, um, it's, it's a little more challenging uh, with the current price closer to 20,000. Uh, amazing, you know, over a very short period of time how big of a run-up we've had. Um, but having said that, uh, our, our fundamental work shows that Bitcoin uh, should be worth about $400,000. $400,000. That had our jaws there. on the floor. We had to sort of call him up and make sure he was meaning it. Like, yeah, talk to us about that 400000 figure. How quickly does he get there, Seth? Well, you, you know, the way we're thinking about it, and, and my involvement in Bitcoin started in 2012 and, and CoinFund was founded in 2015. The, the way we're thinking about it is if you look at kind of the, the pattern recognition of Bitcoin's four-year cycles, one hundred fifty to 250000 looks like the base case. But here's the thing, it's becoming an institutional asset class this cycle. And that strikes me as being analogous to, you know, my background is in equities. When Tesla stepped up from the 25 to $35 range up to 150 to 350, and then it consolidated for a while, 
I think we could actually pull forward the next cycle, mm. see Bitcoin go to 500,000 to a million, and then probably consolidate wow. for a few years in that range. Yeah. But, but I think we could actually get there in the 21, 22 timeframe. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.